All right, look at the book of James. Let's turn there if we can, please. We've taken uh, several, several months and gone through each book of the Bible, beginning with Genesis, and now uh, we are in the book of James. He left off of the book of Hebrews last week, now in the book of James, and looking forward to it. James is a powerful book of the Bible. It's only five chapters. James and Jesus most likely had the same mother, but they had different dads. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He was raised in the same home with Jesus. Jesus older, he younger. And uh, James was, um, Joseph was his dad. Probably did not believe, and the Bible tells in the Gospels, that his brethren did not really think that he was the Messiah. They were probably suffering from resentment. Could you imagine being raised in the same home with Jesus? Mom and dad would say, why can't you just be like Jesus? <laughs> you know, and I probably had some problems there just because living with a perfect brother who was really perfect. Well, the Lord Jesus uh, captured his heart. And matter of fact, he doesn't say James, the brother of Jesus Christ. He says James, the servant of Jesus Christ. And um, we believe he became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. The first pastor was James, but he was one of the disciples. And uh, Herod took his head off, killed him, and arrested Peter. But going forward, looks like James took up the mantle and became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us um, that after, of course, um, uh, that time, many of the, the Jewish believers began to scatter abroad. They had to move after Stephen was killed by the stoning, and his wife became a, a widow, and his kids became fatherless. Uh, the next deacon, Philip, he moved out of Jerusalem up to Samaria. He had four daughters and his wife. Not sure that they moved with him at the time, but he moved up there. He got into the hood where he knew that the Jewish police would not come after him. But there he won, won people to Christ. And from there, people went into Samaria and all Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. They began to spread out. But they were struggling because they were suffering persecution. And it seems like James, uh, historians call him Old Camel Knees. I wonder why he was called Old Camel Knees. Probably he was a man of prayer and someone who prayed. And, and uh, he was a little bit of a hard hitter. He was not someone who beat around the bush. He hit you right in the snot box. He just kind of came at you real strong and told you, hey, here's your problem. Get this straightened out. But I think if you were to look at the book of James, you'll see that he is trying to develop mature Christians. He's trying to develop maturity. And I've said this about four times in the last three or four messages, but sometimes people grow old, but they don't grow up. They don't mature. And sometimes I've found that Christians who've been saved for a year or two are more mature in their response to problems than someone's been saved for 30 years. They just can't figure it out. They just don't grow up. And I think James is probably telling people, listen, it's time to mature spiritually. Now, I do not know what mature Christians are exactly, but I, I think there's several attributes and characteristics of mature Christians. Number one, I think mature Christians, they know themselves. They know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. They know who they are. Um, if you're a mature Christian, you know that uh, you, you may not be able to watch movies everyone else watches because it takes you down a wrong road. You may not be able to go to the company picnic because you know alcohol is going to flow like a river and you probably have no sense. And most of us should not be at something like that. 
Some people who know themselves, I have a friend of mine, he says, you know what? I think I know my spiritual gift. I said, what is it? He said, it's criticism. (laughs) I said, hey, that's not a spiritual gift because I know, but I think it's my gift because I have a critical thing to think about everything. He said, I have to watch myself in church. Someone says something, I want to criticize it. I see someone do something, I want to criticize it. And really, I need to compliment rather than criticize. I need to help instead of hurt. What he's saying is, I know myself. I got problems. And all of us have problems. But I think mature Christians know themselves. They know their strengths and know their weaknesses. Number two, mature Christians are themselves. They really are genuine. What you see on Sunday, you'll see on Monday. They might be dressed a little bit different, maybe in work clothes and things. But you'll see them very consistent. What they are at home, they are at church. They're very consistent, just like Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You say, you want to be stable? Get close to Jesus. (laughs) He'll rub off on you. Mature Christians know themselves. They are themselves. Mature Christians are sensitive to those around them. You know, it's, very, it's very common on an airplane. If you have a little baby sitting around you, when they go up or down, their ears start hurting. Uh, there's pressure on their ears, and they don't know what to do with that, so they scream bloody murder. <laughs> and they don't care about your ears. They don't think about anybody else around them. All they think about is, I'm having pain, and I gotta get, I gotta, I'm going to scream. Well, when kids are in a grocery store, and their mother says, no, you can't have that candy bar. They start getting mad and scream and holler. They don't care who sees them. They're not sensitive to those around them. Sometimes we have a church service, and people talk and goof around in church. It's because they're immature. They don't get it. They don't get it that they're disturbing someone else. They don't care. But you know, mature Christians are sensitive. We have, you've heard people say, I don't care. I just say whatever's on my mind. You're an idiot. <laughs> don't do that. You'll hurt people. You should be sensitive to those around us. The Bible says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We've got to be very careful and be sensitive to those around us. It's a mark of maturity. Mature Christians are contented in their spirit. They're not people that are frustrating to be with. They're people who have contentment. Have you ever taken a trip with a discontented person? You know, you stop at McDonald's and say, well, can we stop at Taco Bell, you know? You know, you're driving in a car with them, and you're on a trip, and they go, anyone ever heard of an air condition? It's hot in here, you know? Five minutes later, when you've cooled it down, someone trying to hang meat, it's freezing in here, you know? Boy, they just got something negative to say. Oh, we're going to stop? Oh, we're going to stop again? Okay, okay. This the kind of person you want to drop them off at the rest area on one side and then tell them on the way back from vacation, we'll see you on the other side. How about that? Be careful as you cross the highway, all right? Because we're not taking this trip with you. But you know, the truth of the matter is, Christians who are mature are a blessing to be. They add blessing. They don't suck life out of you. They don't drain. They, they deposit grace and strength. Mature Christians know themselves. They are themselves. They're contented in their spirit. They're sensitive to those around them. I think mature Christians also are thinking about eternity, not now. They're evaluating what's best for eternity, not what's best for me. Mature Christians are focused on, on not on rights and privileges, but on responsibility. They're not leaned upon feelings. They're, they're leaned upon what is right, what's my responsibility, or not what I feel like doing, what am I supposed to do? I think mature Christians are motivated by love. I think that's what James was trying to produce. He said, listen, guys, we have got to grow up. 
Yeah, it's a difficult time to be a Christian. Yes, there's persecution. Yes, you can walk on the fresh grave of, of Stephen, and you know this, that Philip's up in Samaria, and it's not a good time, and the police are looking for some folks, and it's not an easy time to be a Christian, but it's time to stop sucking our thumbs, and let's get with it here. Let's grow up. Let's take it on. Let's do what God wants us to do. I think with that is the challenge of James. And we can't go through the entire book, but I want to tell you, I think, a few things that God tells us that do generate maturity and show maturity. You might want to ask yourself, even with that little list of things I gave you, I wonder, am I a mature Christian? Do I know myself? Am I genuinely myself, my good self at home as well as other places? Am I sensitive to others? Am I focused on the eternal or am I just focused on now? Am I focused on how my feelings are or am I focused on my responsibilities? Do I, am I motivated by a pat in the back, a kick in the pants? Or am I motivated because I really do love God and I know he loves me? Well, what does God do to do that in our hearts? I'm going to just give it to you very quickly because our time will go by fast. But here's the Bible study, and I hope you'll do the study later. But let's look real quickly. Biblical perspectives that show maturity and help us grow in maturity. The first thing that God uses to help us mature is problems, trials. The word the Bible is going to use is temptation. But the word I'm going to ask you to put there is suffering. Suffering. Difficult times. And James says, look, count it all joy when you fall into diverse or different kinds of temptations. One thing I don't like and you don't like, and that is problems. And we have a problem or a difficult thing that brings pain and, and loneliness and hardship to us. We want to transition out. God wants to use that through. He says, you don't have to have joy because you heard the word cancer from your doctor. You're not, you're not thankful for the, 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 the difficulty. You're thankful for what God can do through that. I have a beautiful family. And I, I went and Linda and I sat in their front room the other day. They go to this church. And they have already three beautiful kids. But they're expecting their first boy. And uh, they said, Pastor, we went to the doctor and there's a little bit of a problem. And we went over and saw them in their home. And Linda and I sat with them. And they said, Pastor, we, we've got these beautiful girls, and we're going to have our first boy. But three doctors have now told us that our baby has a disease, a problem. Part of its cranium is missing. It doesn't have a, one of its arms. The kidneys are messed up. There's been only one child with this disease that's ever lived, and they live as a vegetable. Looks like we're going to give birth to a baby that's not going to make it. Boy, painful. I'm so impressed with the couple. Because you know what? They didn't do this. They didn't make their problem all about them. Because that problem is not about the daddy, it's not about the mom, and it's not about the baby. Their problem is about what God can do through that circumstance. What he can do. What he will develop in their hearts. Because there will be other people that will need someone who's gone through that problem. Your problem that you're going through. God says, I want you to do three things when you have a problem. And he tells us here, number one, count it all joy. Praise God for your problem. Number two, pray for wisdom in the middle of your problem. The key verse, I think, of James, many of them could apply, but I like this one. You know it. If any man, verse five of chapter one, if any man lack wisdom, let him. Yeah. You know why you need wisdom? For your problems. 
When you have a difficulty, that's what you need. You don't need, you don't need logic. You need wisdom. You don't need someone to rescue you. You need, some, you need wisdom to know what to do. I think about the guy who had the worst day that I can imagine in the Bible. I can't think of a harder day than, first of all, Jesus, but then Job. Job, could you imagine losing all your wealth in a matter of a moment? And then losing your children, not one child. We've had a, we've had a funeral with one of our kids. It was terrible. I couldn't imagine 10 caskets lined up in front of a church. 10 caskets, 10 graves, freshly dug for all 10 of his kids. And then to start getting sores on his head and his, his head and his forehead and his arms and his feet. And he's, on, he's, in, he's got just total boils all over his body. He's miserable in pain. We give his wife a hard time. Oh, she said, honey, just, just curse God and die. I can't take it. Couldn't imagine trying to comfort her with her maternal yearnings, wanting to just see her kids again. It's all over. But the Bible tells us about Job. In all this, Job sinned not nor charged God how? Foolishly. That means in, in all of it, he didn't do the best, and God revealed some pride in Job and some arrogance and some self-will. But the, quite frankly, God says he, didn't, he wasn't a fool. He exercised some wisdom in the middle of his trial. You know, that's what we need to do. We need to praise God for a trial. We ought to pray for wisdom in a trial. Verse number 12, look at chapter 1, verse 12. Read it with me, if you would, please. The Bible says, Blessed is the man that endureth what? And when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. If we love God, we persevere through it. We keep going. The first thing God uses to help us mature and show maturity and grow in maturity is trials, suffering. Number two, the scriptures. The scriptures. And I, I will only just re re reference it, but look at verse 17 of chapter 1. The Bible says, Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above, cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no verbiness, neither shadow of turning. Well, what is that good gift? Now, I use it generically. I've done it in my preaching. I've done it in my talks and tell people, listen, everything God gave you, everything you have, God gave you. And it's true. But in context, I think it's talking about the scriptures. You can see it in the very next verse. It said that we're, we're, we're saved, we're, we're brought into God's family by the word of God. And then he calls it the perfect law of liberty. He says, like a man who looks into uh, the mirror and he sees what he sees in the morning, he doesn't do anything about it. It's like someone who goes to a church service, who reads their Bible, who goes to Sunday school class, hears what they need to do, and then they don't make any changes. He said, that's silly. Could you imagine if all of us showed up tonight having looked and saw what we saw in the mirror this morning and didn't do anything about it? This would be a comical service, wouldn't it? You'd probably say, are you kidding me? Our hair going every which way but loose, our snot in our eyes, and all the things that, that scum on our teeth. We didn't do anything about what we saw this morning. That would be terrible. He said, that's exactly how a man is who looks into the law of liberty and says, oh, I see what I need to do, but then he doesn't do it. He said, that man's religion is in vain. So if you see somebody who says, I'm religious, the end of the chapter, he says, you know, you see someone who says, you know what, I really am. I, I am a good Christian. You can tell. Because the Word of God will generate three things real quickly. Number one, it will generate inside of us bridled speech. He says, if a man say he's religious and he doesn't bridle his tongue, that man's religion is in vain. That woman, if you, in a relationship with the Bible, helps to bridle your tongue. 
Number two, he says, not only that, but you'll also become benevolent in your spirit. A giving person is fostered from someone who knows and loves and applies the Bible. You'll become giving. He said, if you see, you minister to the widows and the, the fathers in their affliction, that's a, that's a byproduct of a relationship with the Bible. The third thing is he'll keep himself un, unspotted from the world. He said, boy, when someone has a relationship with the Bible, they mature, they become bridal in their speech, careful with what they say, careful what they type, careful with what they post. They will be, become generous in their actions. They'll, be become, they'll look for needs and fill them. And then lastly, they'll be blameless in their separation. The Word of God is one of God's favorite tools to generate maturity. Suffering and the Scriptures. Chapter 2, I'll just give you the word here, and it's sensitivity. Sensitivity. He gives the analogy of a, of a man who comes into church and they just look so nice, he's dressed nice, and the ushers see him and say, oh man, this guy's sharp, let's give him a good seat. And then we see someone else come in, and he's been on the street several weeks. He's, he's wet himself. He's, he doesn't smell good. His hair's all greasy. And we say, oh, no. Would you just stand over here in the corner? We give preference because of, of, of their appearance. He says, look, God's not a respecter of persons. He loves everybody. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord's making them all. And one of the things that help us not to be prejudiced Bias, partial, is a relationship with, in maturity. When you get mature in the spiritual realm, you become, really, you love everybody. You may not like to spend the time with everybody, but you're not going to give them the indication that they're less than you because of, of by our attitude. We're not going to walk by and say, oh, man, what are you doing here? No, our spirit will be different. God shows our maturity and grows in maturity by putting you in places with people that really are not like you. And maybe you're not real comfortable with them, but God's going to use it to mature you and teach you to say, you know what? God loves everybody, and I've got to get used to it, and I want to love them like God loves them. The next thing we see is service. He said, if you say you have faith, well, show me your faith by your works. Some of you want to say, oh, Paul taught faith, and James is teaching works. Well, both of them taught works, and both of them taught faith. He said, if you say you're saved, then live it out. Paul says it's like this, work out your own salvation <laughs> if you're saved. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is to get to God. It's not of works, so any man should boast. So no one goes to heaven because they're good. But then he says in the next verse, but we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto, he said, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. So you don't work your way to heaven. You get saved by faith. But after you're saved... Faith should work. It should show something. And people can say, uh, well, you know, he, he says, look, people can't see your heart. You say, well, I tell you, I'm saved. I'm as saved as the Apostle Paul. Well, then show it. That's how people see it. God can know your heart, but people see your works. And we grow in maturity by suffering, by scriptures, by sensitivity, and by service. Chapter 3 it talks about the tongue, and I'll just give you that word. We grow in our maturity and show maturity by how we use our mouth. And in that passage of Scripture, chapter 3, you'll find that he compares the tongue. It's a small member compared to our body, my 202-many-pound body. My tongue is very small, but my tongue is very powerful. 
It's like a, a bit in the horse's mouth. The horse is, is, is 1,200 pounds, 900 pounds, 1,100 pounds, sometimes larger. But you can put a bit, a little steel piece in their mouth, and you can turn their whole body and give them direction. On the back of a boat, there's a helm. There's a, there's, a, there's a helm at the back of the boat, a rudder. And compared to the boat, that's a very small piece of that boat, but it gives direction to that boat. He said that's what the tongue does. The tongue is made to give direction. He said, but it also can bring destruction. It can be a fire in the world of iniquity. How many times can we confess, yeah, I set a fire with my mouth. I, put, I, I, I caused more problems. You can shake a stick. I can't believe I pushed sin on that. That was dumb. I said those words. I can't believe that. And the other day, uh, well, not so much the other day, but a couple months ago, I remember someone saying, saying something like, you know, I said, I said oh, we, you know, I, I see what you said in there. I didn't say that. I said, can I show it to you? And they said, I guess I did say that. I said, you think it was helpful or hurtful? No, oh, it was hurtful. You think it directed or did it destroy? Oh, it was pretty destructive. So it can be a fire. But we show maturity, we grow maturity by how we handle our speech. And the Bible tells us, man, the tongue can no man tame. You can tame lions in a cage. You can tame uh, animals to do all kinds of things. But you can't control that little thing inside of our teeth. And it can become a problem. You know, it can be a fire in the world of iniquity. But as we mature in the Lord, we learn to control our mouth. The next thing real quickly is that spiritual wisdom. And you can see that, that wisdom is from above. The next one, verse number seven, or number seven there is separation. Look at chapter four of James, would you please? Chapter four of James, the Bible says, From whence come wars and fights among you? Come they not hence from your own lusts, which war in your own members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have. Verse number two, and cannot obtain, ye fight in war, but ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss. They may consume it upon your lust. And read verse four with me, would you please? Here we go. Ye adulterers, and know ye not? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world. Verse 5 says, Do you think the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit dwelleth in us, lusteth to envy? He said, uh, He giveth more grace. He's reminding us that as we grow in the Lord and maturity develops, spiritual maturity, we want to be more holy and less worldly. That's just, the, he, said, he said, look, and he uses some strong terms. He says, you adulterers and adulterers. I don't know about you, but that's something I don't ever want to be. He said, he said, do you think the Spirit of God is jealous if you're flirting with the world? If you're a friendship with the world, you're an enemy with God. You can't live on both sides of that. I think we had Dakota say, you know, I, I tried living, I tried to get in victory with, with a one foot in the world and one foot with God. How does that work for any of us? Doesn't work, does it? Maturity is shown, we, we, we put the line down and we separate unto him. Look at the next one, if you would, please. Submission. That's where the verse is in verse number 7. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. We show maturity by our willingness to submit. We're naturally born fools. The Bible says foolishness is born, up, is, is born in the heart of a child. We got it already naturally there. And fools are rebellious in nature. Every once in a while I have someone say, well, I'm just, I'm just rebellious. I just, that's just part of me. Well, all of us have that. And it's a terrible way to live because it ushers in satanic influences in their life. He said, the way you want to you be mature is submit yourself to God and his authorities. Draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Look at the next thing, verse number, number nine. The brevity of the shortness of life. That's where we get that verse 
where it says, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears. The th difference between you and those people out in the grave at memory lane or in the mausoleum is you're still in your vapor. <laughs> They're not in their vapor anymore. And he said, well, we were quick to say, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. What you need to say, if the Lord wants me to do it, that's what I'll do. And realize that life is short. And what you cannot do with energy, you and I ought to do with urgency. Look at the next statement, if you would, please. And that is substance. This is a very convicting section. You'll read it yourself, but that is uh, chapter 5. Let's read a couple verses, can we? Verse number 1. It says here, go to now, ye rich men. That's everybody in this room. We all have more than we need. We may not be rich compared to the Bill Gates or to the Warren Buffetts, but we all have more than we need. Uh, America uh, has only 4% of the world's population. They tell me it has 45% of the world's wealth. So most of the people, the people, the 8 billion people that breathe air on our planet don't have it as good as we have it here. The poorest person in this room is not worried about eating today. Many people are starving today. So he said, look, you rich man, if you got more than you need, it's talking to me and talking to you. Don't say, well, that's talking to some really rich people in our church. No, it's talking to you. Let's see what it says, can we? Weep and howl for your what? That shall come upon you, for your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is what? And the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were with fire, and ye have heaped treasures together for the last days. He, he begins to say here, he says, you're gonna, if you're not careful, you'll keep more than you should keep. You know what moss, no, moss didn't follow us in today. You know where moths are? They're in closets. They've got so many clothes there, they can't put another hanger in. You know where gold cankers? It cankers in bags where you just keep it, keep it, keep it, year after year, instead of put it into circulation. He said, one day, those of us who kept too much, we didn't know when enough was enough, our possessions will be a witness against us at the judgment of Christ. He says, look, you're going to weep and howl, you rich men, for you kept more than you could keep. You used your profit to mistreat other people. You lived in pleasure rather than living for God in this lifetime. Just look for the next party. It's a challenge. And he says, you're going you're to weep and howl one day because maturity is shown and it's grown in how we manage substance. The last three things here, and I'll give them to you quickly, and that is steadfastness. He talks about a farmer. You do the right thing the right way. You don't see the results. What do you do? You keep doing the right thing the right way. You don't quit. You don't get weary. You wait for the latter rain. How many things could be done if people just didn't quit? How many marriages would survive if people didn't quit? How many Sunday school classes would continue to be vibrant if someone didn't quit? Let's just keep going, keep doing it, and be steadfast. And then he talks about supplication or prayer. That's where we have the verse, the effectual fervent prayer of a... Yeah, he talks about prayer, what to do when you have a problem. Pray. If you're afflicted, pray. Not get on Facebook, pray. <laughs> Not put your business out there, pray. He said, learn to do that because being right with God will produce effective prayer. Let's read the last two verses of the book. Can we do that? Verse 19, are you ready? Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, verse 20, let him know that he that converteth a sinner from the error of his ways. 
He speaks of soul winning. The last part, getting people the gospel. See, Pastor, what's the big thing about winning people to Christ? Well, because when you win people to Christ, you have an opportunity to cover a lot and, and retard sin's complication. Could you imagine if God let us know everything that happened in Hammond, Indiana, a town of 78,000 people on just one Saturday night from 10 o'clock at night until 4 o'clock in the morning? If you just had six hours and God let you know what happened in every bar, in every brothel, in every home, every little kid that was taken advantage of and hurt, every drunken stupor, every drug-infested place, every nasty thing that happened in six hours in one town, I think probably most of us would go to the funny farm. We probably could not absorb a six-hour period in a one little town of 78,000 people. But you know, God knows what happens every place, every hour of every day in Bangkok, in Phnom Penh, in Sydney, in New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, and New Orleans. He knows what happens every night in Chicago. You know, the only thing that can retard that wickedness is the gospel of Jesus. When people get saved, things change. When they get the gospel, it's the, it's the greatest agent of change known to mankind is the gospel. I'm thankful for other programs, but they're just temporary band-aids. It'd be terrible to get sober and go to hell. We need the gospel of Christ. And so James says, listen, if you're going to show maturity, you need to get somebody the gospel. In person and in proxy and both ways are, are advised. Let's look at the last three statements there. Seek God's wisdom for life's trials. Seek the wisdom of God for your trials. Number two, Use your words to direct, not to destroy. Use the words you speak, the words you type, the text you make to direct, not to destroy. And then number three, soul winning can retard the complications of sin. You can help a little boy or a little girl if you will help them get their dad and mom saved. You'll help a teenager if you can help them get saved in an early age so he doesn't have to go through some of the things that happen after that. A lot of things can happen if we'll get the gospel out.